passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome back, everybody. John Pollock here, live from the post office, and look who we have found. Cody Safdick, back here. We haven't scared you off yet. Thank you so much, Cody, for joining us. Always my pleasure to come. I did make a rookie mistake, though, John. I thought I should take an Uber to see uh, John in the office today. But then I decided, beautiful day, I'm going to walk it out. And uh, the expression, I believe, is hotter than Derek Lewis's balls out there. <laughs> because it's, 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 I opened my door, and I thought Cody just ran a marathon. Yeah, I felt bad, too, because I'm like, oh, I'm going to show up, and John's going to be like, why did I invite this guy over? But uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's like 35 degrees or something. I'm always happy when I open my door, and there is, there is Cody Safdick on the other end of it. Uh, always great to chat with you. Lots to catch up with. Uh, we're, we'll primarily discuss UFC 239, but as we go back to this past weekend, I think two real interesting fights in Minneapolis. Number one, Joseph Benavidez, uh, you know, not to say he had a flawless performance, but I would say a pretty dominant win over Juicy A. Formiga. And I go back and look, it's interesting, the two stories. We look at Francis Ngannou and the story kind of coming out of that was, well, he has done enough now to get back and get another heavyweight title fight. And if I'm Joseph Benavidez and my last title fight was in 2013, I have a win over the current champion. And yet, Cody, I don't even feel confident that his next fight will be for a championship. Yeah, Joey two times says it's fate that he's going to fight the champion again, but uh, I don't necessarily... I don't know if fate's been on this dude's side, because he might be the most talented guy that is just... Man, came along at a time... Had his chances with Demetrius Johnson, to be fair, but has anyone had to work harder to get another title fight in his career than Joseph Benavides? No, that's exactly it. If he was born in a time that Demetrius Johnson didn't exist, he'd be viewed as one of the greatest flyweight champions of all time. He's been the next best guy for almost a decade. And that's unfortunately the unfortunate situation for him. He's the next best guy. Now he's got a run where, geez, I have a new champion, a champion who I defeated in Henry Cejudo. I feel good about my chances. The problem is when you run into a champ-champ situation, John, that's when there's no title defenses going on because the champion, he's now tying up two weight classes. In Henry Cejudo's case, yeah, the guy wants to fight, but just had shoulder surgery. Mentioned the fact that he'd hurt his leg prior to his last title defense, or prior to his last fight anyways, um, against Marlon Marias. He's a little bit banged up. He's in his 30s. He needs to take a little bit of time. He's a guy that has struggled weight cuts in the past. His, I don't think his first choice is drop down to 125, fight there real quick, then come back to 135. Right. Especially coming off the injury. I don't know that that's the route he takes. And if that's not the route he takes, then Joseph Benavides is screwed. Who else is going to fight at 125? They've killed most of the division, and the division, the rest of the division that they've kept there, he's already defeated. So what, what is there left for Joseph Benavides 
other than the title fight. I think now, if you're only- in the UFC and you offer him a stay busy fight, if you're Joseph Bina, do, do you take it? I've done enough for the title fight. I could get one sitting on the sideline. We all know how that's played out historically. Like, when you look at it, I mean, the last flyweight title fight, we're coming up on a year yeah. since Henry Cejudo won this title, and he's not going to, he likely is gone for the rest of this year. So when are you looking at this guy defending this title again? To me, it's a division that I think it is clinging to life based on Henry Cejudo and what he opts to do next. And if you're Henry Cejudo, am I, as you just said, like, are you looking at Joseph Benavides, a super tough challenge? How much is the return on that? for Henry Cejudo versus some of the names you'll have at bantamweight that are going to be more attractive to you if you're Henry Cejudo. I, I think that this flyweight division, it's holding by a thread. There's no even discussion of an interim title, which I think this could warrant that kind of situation. But I don't know if you have the division that can that the, the UFC is necessarily going to put a whole lot of weight behind. It just feels like a division that is waiting for its ultimate judgment. Yeah, I believe so. It, to be honest, the best resolution for the flyweight division was if Henry Cejudo was to lose to Marlon Moraes, because then the argument sure. for him staying at 135 is gone. He's going to come back to 125. He might as well do the rematch with Joby Wan. And uh, we got a couple other guys in the division that can challenge along the way. We'll sign a couple guys. If someone like Horiguchi becomes available again, maybe we can... To look down that avenue, I think he's gone. Bellator's got him pretty wrapped up. But all the same, other challengers will come along. But him winning, it makes it seem like, geez, he might as well stay at 135. And 135, John, in my opinion, best division in the sport. You look at that division, you see challengers like Peter Yawn. You see guys like Aljamain Sterling. You see guys like Pedro Munoz. You see guys like Dominic Cruz is on the sidelines. He's still viewed as a top guy. Cody Garbrandt, three fights by knockout, still viewed as a top guy. Uh, yeah, I don't discount cut- Cody Garbrandt that he, you know, he's taking this time off and I think he could come back and I completely agree. I think Josh San or I think uh, Corey Sanhagen, sorry, is another prospect worth looking at that's coming up the pipe. I think them cutting John Lineker, even though it seems crazy, is just it. It just goes to back up the point that they have so many talented 135ers that you know cutting John Lineker not a great idea. But obviously, there's a backstory there that we've just been haven't been informed of. And we can free him up because honestly, we have another 10 guys in the division that are all contending, that are all fighting at the highest level. So adding Henry Cejudo to the mix is great. But if he's going to be injured on the sidelines, you want to hurry up the process and get him back to defending at 135 where there's interesting matchups. You can sell less. There's going to be less pay-per-views. There's going to be less general interest if he comes back. If I Joseph Benavidez quick. So what is the UFC more interested? Progressing 135, a very talent-rich division, or going back and trying to save 125, which, as you mentioned, hanging on by thread. Yeah, I mean, they they put seven years into this flyweight division. And they I, try. Think, I think they look at it, and it's like, th- this is where it's at. Um, so we, we will see what happens next. If they're, uh, Right now, yes or no, there is another flyweight championship fight in the UFC. There is, but I wouldn't rule out that it's an interim title. I wouldn't rule okay. out that they say Henry's going to be off for a little bit the rest of the year. When he comes back, uh, he's going to fight at 135. So Joseph Benavides can fight somebody in the meantime, and the winner of that will get the first crack guaranteed at Henry Cejudo after the three. And if he loses that 35-pound title, well, where else is he going to go, John? Back to defend 125. And if, if Henry does it again and he defends the 35 title, you either need to vacate 25 and move on, you're not going back, you need to go defend it, right? When you look at Henry Cejudo, it's kind of off topic, but man, to me, he, he has put together a really strong argument for fighter of the year. Now, if he doesn't fight again this year, do you think that that is still, that he still becomes the front runner? I, I think that John Jones becomes very interesting how he performs this Saturday and he gets another fight in this year. Uh, I, I think he'd probably edge out Cejudo, to be honest. I don't know. But so, I, I'm all with I, Cejudo I, right I, now. I gotta go with Henry Cejudo on the basis of he comes in initially against Demetrius Johnson, but that's not part of the year, but he defeats him as a sizable underdog. Like nobody was really giving them that shot. Then you move up a weight class and you take on TJ Dillashaw. People are writing him off. 
and he sparks TJ Dillashaw. Now he gets a fight against Marlon Marias, who nobody won the division realistically wants to fight this guy. Again, he's been written off as an underdog, even though he's the 125 champ and looks to have all the skills in the world. He's being seen as an underdog. And again, he goes and puts on a masterful performance. Outside of that first round, he did everything that was necessary in order to neutralize and then ultimately defeat Marlon Marias and look spectacular. When I look at his body of work, I'm very impressed. When I look at John Jones, yeah, pound for pound, great. Greatest of all time. However, beating Anthony Smith by five-round decision and who knows how this Tiago Santos fight plays out, maybe Jones has got a high ring IQ. He's not out there trying to finish you in the first round. Mm -hmm. He's trying to drag this fight out. And the smartest way to fight Tiago Santos is not stand in front of him at range and doodle some kicks at him while he tries to take your head off it would be to neutralize him take him down try to ground and pound him tire him out it's not the most exciting style but beating tiago santos a 185er with losses to musasi and david branch at 205 pounds and beating anthony smith a guy with 13 career defeats viewed as a journeyman by many is not nearly as impressive as what henry cejudo is doing which is fighting the best guys in the world so i would have to give the nod to him yeah I, i'm with you i think too often we just look at the the number of fights in a year that a guy wins and not necessarily assessing the, the quality let's be honest like anthony smith and tiago Santos, uh, the challenges in their own rights, like good light heavyweights, but it's not like John Jones is is fighting the guys that are are that we're going in with lots of questions about. Which maybe a Luke Rockhold will present that, maybe a Chris Weidman will, but we're not there yet. Yeah, we're not there yet, and it's not John Jones's fault. He's tried to nope. fight everybody that's available to him. The issue is there's nobody available to him, and the Demetrius Johnson for a long time had the same problem. It's not my fault that there's this much of a talent gap between me and the rest of the division. I could go through the motions and beat these guys, and I can score finishes and beat these guys, but you start to care less when there's not a presentable challenge. And in Jones's case, yes, Tiago Santos has a puncher's chance, but that's the only narrative of any of these guys that are challenging Jones. They have a puncher's chance. Now, let's set up either a fight at 205 with a DC or a, a, a Stipe Miocic or something like that. Then it's interesting. Then there's a weight class jump. Then there's more, you know, um, there's more things to look at. If DC was to drop down to 205, okay, he can present a good challenge to Jones. But the rest of these guys, on paper, you don't see it. And when you don't see it, you don't get nearly as excited. Yeah, and this week it was the first set. Like, we've heard John Jones in this, you know, he has just been the... The model employee since all of these problems have happened. And I think he has just been someone I'm going to fight for the UFC. I'm going to turn around quickly. Fought Gustafson, fought Anthony Smith. Now he's fighting Tiago Santos. And this week he did that interview with Brett Okamoto. And it was the first little hint at, well, if I go to heavyweight, I, I want to be paid. And that was the kind of the, the first hint of like John Jones kind of showing his hand because I've been very curious that as we've seen this move over to ESPN plus for pay-per-view, how it's impacted the big draws of the company and how much that's different. If you are paid off a percentage of pay-per-view buys and we're going to a platform, we're going from a universe of a hundred million that in theory have access to buy your pay-per-view to two million on ESPN plus. Well, that's a big disparity. How is that money getting made up? And I think that's a question uh, for any of these guys. And their managers and what impact that's having them on them. What impact did that have in the Brock Lesnar negotiations? What impact has that tons, had tons. getting Conor McGregor to come back? I mean, it's, it's a very different pay scale that the UFC is operating under now where you're moving your pay-per-views to a streaming platform, at least in the U.S., where you're going to get the bulk of your buys. Yeah, I feel like John Jones is actually an underpaid athlete, but the reason why it's justifiable, in my opinion, is because he's screwed up, right? And because he's screwed up multiple times, the UFC's backed him, he's been on the sidelines for a couple of years, they move an entire card for him, they, they, they 
put their support behind this guy. That it's almost like a, yo, you owe me one, John. Can you fight four times this year and take a pay cut? Yeah, I'm going to fight four times this year and take a pay cut. But I'm going to take on these run-of-the-mill challengers. I'm going to take on Gustafson. On paper, looks good, but he's been off. Injuries, just retired. We know he's had better days. Anthony Smith, uh, Tiago Santos. After this, I might take on a Johnny Walker. Kind of fun fights, but at the same time, like those guys shouldn't really be challenging guys like John Jones for the pay cut. But now the UFC wants to up the ante and says we can make a lot of money or a lot more money if we move up John and have an appealing super fight at heavyweight. If you're going to make more money, I got to make more money too. Also, you're screwing with me here. You're asking me to jump up, risk my legacy. I want to be a 20-time champion. I want to be a guy that, you know, in theory is undefeated because nobody really counts that Matt Hamill uh, fight as a loss. Um, my whole legacy is on the line. Why would I risk all that by jumping up a weight class? There's no need to risk it. Demetrius Johnson, he was in a similar situation. You run at 125, and now all the pressure is you got to go up and fight TJ Dillashaw. You should move up to 135 and fight TJ Dillashaw. You should move up because you got to challenge yourself because you're beating these guys. And he quite simply says, I'll move up, but I would like some money too. And they end up trading him for Ben Askren. They don't want to pay these guys the money that they're asking for. But in a Demetrius Johnson's case, you see it as like he doesn't have a ton of leverage. When you look at John Jones, in an era where Ronda Rousey's long gone and Conor McGregor doesn't seem to be coming back, John Jones is kind of your guy. So you need to pay him, especially if you want to move up to heavyweight and have some grand super fight for you. So him demanding more money, I mean, that's a no-brainer. What, How much more money he's asking for, I don't know. And when you look at the UFC being, they have an opportunity to bring in Brock Lesnar, who instantly hasn't fought since UFC 200, instantly... Could be a bigger star than John Jones. They, they could bring in their biggest star right now by signing him if they didn't want to pony up the money for him. So maybe that's an indication of in this day and age, the money's just not there. We'd rather have a roster of five, 600 people where they're bringing in guys that are three and one, four and one, five and one, should not be in the UFC just to fill roster spots, just to fill cards, just to fill out these contracts, right? We have to do X amount of cards and we're going to fill our contractual obligations by doing so. But John Jones has got to look for, out for himself and himself is if you want me to move up and take that challenge, I need to be compensated. And I don't disagree with that. And also on the UFC side, I mean, if you're not getting that pressure from ESPN Plus, you are getting, we don't know what the figure is, but they're getting a set amount for all these shows. So it's not like feast or famine that, you know, if this pay-per-view tanks, it affects us. It's like we're getting paid X amount already, regardless of what we put on there. Certainly you want to make more than less, but it's also not as volatile a pay-per-view business as it was for the UFC a year ago. Yeah, absolutely. I look at almost like a TV deal, like a, like a, like a MLB TV deal, right? People want to watch the premium games. People want to watch the Yankees. People want to watch the Red Sox. But there's a zillion other games going on, John, that most people don't care about, where the players are players you don't recognize. But there's a fan base to those specific players, and there's a fan base to that specific market. And that's what the UFC is doing. They're going to places like Carolina. They're going to places like Minnesota. They're going to these smaller markets, putting some local fighters on the card and trying to draw out these little small markets. But as a whole, people are looking at it and saying, geez, this is a one-fight card. I mean, if JDS and Ngannou, for whatever reason, falls off that card, woof, UFC's in rough shape. But but I, I don't think they care. I think it's, we'll put on the big fights now and again, but the rest of it is just going to be like other sports. You can choose to watch it. As a hockey fan, you don't have to watch the Nashville Predators because you'd rather watch the Leafs. Well, then watch the Leafs. In this case, watch John Jones. Watch the pay-per-views. But there's another market of people that are like, I want to watch all the hockey games. I'm a hockey fan. I'm a diehard hockey fan. The rest of those cards, well, they're for them. So going into Saturday night, it's UFC 239. This is International Fight Week. Uh, and when you look at the history of the 4th of July cards for the company, I mean, it's typically one of, if not the biggest cards of the year, dating back to 
stacked in July 2007. Do you remember that one, Cody? Absolutely. I remember. Absolutely. I remember going in predicting that Heath Herring would beat Nogueira, and then he knocked him down, and I thought my ridiculous prediction was going to come true. Everybody's like, "Why is he not following him? Why is he not following?" Dude, head I kicks was, him. I was just Flush. beside myself because I had people laugh head. at me that Heath Herring was going to beat Nogueira, but I thought that he was going to catch him, and then when he dropped him, man, <laughs> that was the opening. I will tell you something, John. Uh, I was out in Abu Dhabi a month ago, and I ran into Minotaro Nogueira, Big Nog. Um, got to interview him for 10 minutes. Just and let me out. tell you, he well, he's there doing like a documentary series. Right. I don't know if it's for Fight Pass, but essentially he goes to went to Abu Dhabi to cover jiu-jitsu. He goes to Korea to like do some Korean martial art. He goes to Thailand, does Muay Thai. Like They're traveling all around the world doing different uh, martial arts with Nogueira. Anyways, he looks in phenomenal shape. But when he this man walks, John... You, it feels like he just got kicked in the head by Heath Herring. Like, he is stiff as a board and just lame. Tough to see, but it's also, like, an absolute uh, legend of the game. Um, you're talking about 239. That actually, going back to the whole ESPN thing, going back how they're not paying the big money for the fighters, and it seems like there's a lack of maybe a lost luster for the UFC. Fight week, going back to stack, that's the big week. In fact, in recent years, they'll do two cards. They'll do a Friday card. They'll do a Saturday card. Lion Fight Muay Thai comes in, and they get on the action by having a Thursday event. And everybody's in town, and the fighters are signing, and there's a buzz. And there's a yes. buzz in a fight week. And I don't feel there's a single card this year. It doesn't have that same buzz. And from the people I'm talking to, it doesn't seem like a lot of people are making this a destination trip I need to go to. No, I think they scaled back that if you're looking. Absolutely to me, back. the big card of the summer is is... 240 in, or 241 in August with with Cormier, Miocic and Nate Diaz, Anthony Pettis. I mean, that to me feels like the bigger card going into it. Yes, you have two championship fights, but I'm with you. I don't think that this has the big event feel that you could even get by in past years with like a a lesser stacked pay-per-view card. But the fact that you had two, sometimes three events coupled with the Hall of Fame, all this other stuff, it becomes a, you know, if I'm going to travel to a UFC, I'm going to travel there. There's going to be enough stuff going on. It feels like a party. I've been there covering those weeks. Like, it has that that certain buzz to them. And this one, we've got the Hall of Fame Friday, and then Saturday night, the pay-per-view card. And I, I don't sense, like... Like, if this were on traditional pay-per-view, I wouldn't be projecting this one all that high. This would be really be a test of what what does John Jones mean? Because I think that he is the one that really shoulders the the attraction on this pay-per-view. Yeah, and I think fight, fight fans almost have a sour taste in their mouth. Where I watched John Jones fight OSP, I told everybody he was going to kill him, and he went through the motions. I watched John Jones fight Anthony Smith, I told everybody how exciting it was going to be, he was going to kill him, and he went through the motions. So now he's taking on Tiago Santos, and Tiago Santos looks like the kind of dance partner that is not going to present a, a boring fight for you. But really, neither did Anthony Smith for the most part. So you don't know what you're getting out of John Jones. If I had to make a projection on what this would sell, traditional pay-per-view, 350? Is that being generous? Like, yeah, and, it's a, and it's an international fight week card with a secondary co-feature as a title fight, including the greatest women's fighter of all time and Amanda Nunez taking on a fighter that at least everybody knows in Holly Holm because of the win over Rousey. Shouldn't it be selling more? But I, I just, I'm not getting that impression. Yeah. And I mean, with the, the current structure, they've kind of insulated themselves that I mean, those those numbers are really not coming out. So you don't even get like an accurate gauge. Like, was this something that hit that we just didn't sense the buzz for, but ultimately did? Uh, did it do disappointing numbers? I mean, you don't really get that that sense of things. And from the UFC, that kind of deflects uh, both from criticism, but also from being able to pump their chest when something, you know, lands in a, in a big way. 
Yeah, yeah. I would say it comes back to marketing and the ability to market these events. I mean, when you look at this card as a matchmaker, anyways, from that perspective, what more could you do? I mean, I use our biggest star, first and foremost. I use John Jones. I use really the second readily available contender. And the guy, you know, has an exciting story and has an exciting style. So I put that. I put the co-feature as, as we talked about, a great women's champion against Holly Holm. It's a recognizable fight. And then the rest of the card. I put Luke Rockhold on it. I put a Diego Sanchez on it. I put Gilbert this Melendez This is a solid card. This is a solid card. Even if you're not a fight fan by today's standards and you're not watching all these new guys, this is riddled with OG vets that you would like to watch. But at the same point, the UFC had a card last weekend and they have a, they have a card. It's like a nine straight week span of UFC events plus contender series is on Tuesdays and PFL will drop their, uh, Friday night uh, season stuff and Bellator has been amping up and doing Friday and Saturday shows. And there's so, and, and I mean, Polly Molinaji is going to bare knuckle box Artem Lobov in my free time. I don't even have free time, but I'll spare some up for it. There's so much going on that the UFC needs to predicate where are we going to spend our resources and when are we going to, which cards are we going to really market? But trying to evenly distribute it out, which is seemingly what they're doing, they're being lazy. They're dogging it. They just assume John Jones has got enough luster that he himself will sell the fight. But Jones is not a big showman anymore. He's not pushing DC off a, off a stage and getting everybody fired up. He keeps to himself. He talks a little shit online. He shows up. Like you said, he's been a model employee, but he's not a Conor McGregor model employee. Rev the people up and sell this pay-per-view. He's a consummate professional, which is something we haven't seen from him throughout his career. But we're seeing as he matures. Just keeping a low profile. And I, and I understand that uh, from just a, just the perspective of here's a guy that's very much in, still in the process of rehabilitating his image. He's rehabilitating his image. And he's taking on a challenger that doesn't speak great English. He's not going to do a great job of selling the fight. Amanda Nunez has historically not sold any fight. Did taking you, on did you the preacher's daughter, the did nicest you watch, person in the world. Did you see the third episode of Embedded yet? I have not seen it yet. Okay. I've been meaning to, though. It is the funniest scene that that series has had in a long time. Okay. She is in her hotel room with Nina Ansarov, and they're watching the women's soccer game. Yeah. So she puts the interviewer on speaker to do an interview while she's watching the game. So then they score. They're up yelling. They're running around the room. The interviewer, are you still there? This sounds like the absolute worst interview experience of my life. Uh, if I would have hung up. I would have been just like, okay. This is, I am not the priority here on this interview. Good luck at the fight. Yeah, it is yeah, the yeah. funniest scene as she is trying to watch the soccer game and do whatever number of interviews this was. I would like to say that too, but I've waited around for like two hours for Justin Wren. So, I mean, <laughs> chances are I wouldn't hang up on the champ champ. You, uh, you got the but right. I, but I hear where you're coming from, John. I'm fired up too. I would have been pissed off if I was that reporter. You got the run around. <laughs> yeah, the run around. Uh, is, I, I really do like this women's fight. I think that Holly Holm is a very dangerous challenge for Amanda Nunez, someone that, I mean, has very much struggled since losing the title to Misha Tate, which was over three years ago at this point. Uh, but this is very likely her last crack at a championship. Uh, do you see her as, as a danger to Amanda Nunez, or has, is she largely being uh, propped up in this fight in terms of how much of a threat she is to Amanda Nunez? Yeah, well, I almost feel like Amanda Nunez has fought everybody else that there is to fight. She I has. Mean, she fought Rousey. She fought Misha Tate. She fought Cyborg. She's she's done it all. But there was always that, well, what if she fought Holly? And because of Nunez's style, and she's a power puncher, and she's aggressive, and Holly Holm, she's a you know a well-credited boxer, kickboxer, and loves to loves to counterpunch John. I mean, theoretically, if Amanda Nunez chases her around, she's got a, a chance. Also, Nunez, I'm not going to say a fast starter, but there has been cardio issues in the past. I know she has, like, a septum issue where um, uh, she's not able to, like, breathe properly. So the later the fight goes could be an issue. 
We know that Cast Iron Holly's willing to go rounds. We know that Cast Iron Holly's got cardio and that she'll be able to take her into deep waters. So at least there is that bit of a storyline of it's not just a washout. Maybe Holly Holm could pull it off. But Holly Holm's fought a lot of flat-footed power punchers in the past, whether it be Jermaine Durandamy, whether it be Cyborg, uh, whether it be not Shevchenko. She's way more mobile. But people that stand their ground and have power, Holly doesn't commit to hitting them. She'll kind of get in the pocket. She'll move. She makes sounds. It looks like there's a lot of activity going on. But I, I don't want to say she's afraid of getting punched. I don't think that's the issue. But she realizes how big of power punches these opponents are, and she pulls back. When she pulls back, she doesn't engage properly. When she doesn't engage properly. And when she got pressured with Shevchenko, it was largely just retreating against the, the cage, and you were just waiting for her to adjust. And I never really saw that adjustment in that five rounds. There was, there was zero adjustments. But now flip side to this, and I'll give a shout out to Paul Shaughnessy for bringing it to my attention. But when you watch Shevchenko versus Amanda Nunez, she's a lot more mobile than Nunez. So she presents problems. And Holly has that exact same ability. So even though I'm backing the champion here, and I've just been burned from Nunez so many times. Like whenever I think, oh, whenever I'm going against her, she just pulls it out. Like there's, there's no way that you can kind of uh, present a, a logical argument for why she's just going to falter. But when you break down a fight from both perspectives, Holly's got the tools. But as you mentioned, last crack at a world title, getting a little bit older, hasn't looked, you know, her last fight against Megan Anderson, let's take that out because she's out wrestling a girl who had no wrestling ability, whereas Nunez, way stronger, way better takedown defense, and accredited black belt in BJJ. So that if you take out the Megan fight, it's a Betch-Kohea victory since losing the title. Yeah, and John watched that fight not looking good. Mm-hmm. In fact, she's losing after two rounds on a lot of people's cards. I think it's 1-1 after a lot of people's cards, but... Um, but and then the, Betch gets drilled. The live bet was plus 170 Holly Holm after two. So bookmakers not only viewed as her losing the fight, but projecting that she's going to continue, and then just drills her in the head and knocks her out. It's like, oh my God. But when you look at Betch-Kohea who's literally half the size of Amanda Nunez, half as technical, and hits half as hard, and she's able to give her trouble based on forward motion and pressure and all this and that. So I would have to say Amanda Nunez gets the job done. And where does she go beyond this? If Cyborg is able to beat Felicia Spencer, run that fight back one more time, and then you can safely shut down 45. And that's even if Cyborg re-signs after the fight. So. It's like that option, and then it's like Ketlin Vienna. You know else. what I mean? Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's, um, it, it's slim pickings in terms of, you know, also coming up with, with like, marketable names as well, which I think really assists Holly Holm in getting this fight. I think that there is more interest in this than Vieta would have had had she been healthy to do this fight. Yeah, yeah. And, and the move, I think, if you're the UFC is let's get Shevchenko another win or two at 25 and then we're going to run the trilogy back. Like, we'll do a champ-champ matchup and, you know, it'd be awesome if we could say that Amanda Nunez was the 45 champ, the 35 champ, and then defeated the 25 champ at 35, obviously. But this is the weirdest thing I've ever heard, but Nunez is adamant that she can make 25 and wants to fight Nina Ansaroff as her retirement fight. I don't know if you heard about it. It's very strange. And Nina's completely game. And it's like, yeah, we sparred each other so many times. We know each other's tendencies. Like, I'd bring it to her. And they asked Nunez about it. And she was like, yeah, yeah, that'll be my last fight. I'm going to fight Nina. And that'll be it. Makes no sense to me. I'm not holding my breath on that one. Makes no sense to me. So... I don't know. I think when you're Nunez and you've done everything there is to do and you've made some money and you've defeated the challengers and you're getting a little bit older and you do feel slighted by the UFC, like they never properly promoted you, there's a life outside of the game for her. And I don't see her as being somebody that fights five, ten more times in the UFC. I could see this being the last. If she if she wins on Saturday night against Holly Holm, I see she does the cyborg fight again. And I said she does the Shevchenko fight again. And then I've done everything there is to do. Three, three to five more fights. And that could be the end of Amanda Nunez. But let's enjoy those three to five fights what kind of 
performance are you expecting from Luke Rockhold? We haven't seen him since the Yoel Romero knockout, which was February of last year. Uh, he's coming up in light heavyweight. It's a move I- I've, I've liked for Luke Rockhold for a while to come up to light heavyweight. Um, but I certainly have my questions about him. He has as much to gain as anyone on this card because I feel a strong win. He gets the title fight or is at least offered it after this immediately. He's on the platform here where he can instantly make that challenge after this. And I think that you leave wanting to see that fight if both Jones and Rockhold are successful. Yeah, I mean, he he's a gust of wind away from being a title challenger or getting knocked out. And that's the issue with Luke Rockhold. I will go on record as saying this twice this week, but Luke Rockhold, for my money's worth, pound for pound, skill-wise, not punchability. Everything else is the most talented guy I've ever seen. He he can he, His kickboxing is on another level. He doesn't even throw, like, remember the strike force days against Jacare? It's like tornado kicks, spinning back kicks. He threw all of that out because he realized he was getting countered on some stuff. But his check left hook, his long jab, his body kick, the, the, the three tools he uses now, he can strike with the best strikers in the UFC. Firmly believe that. His wrestling, John, the guy can wrestle, take down defenses. Talk remember when he fought Tim Kennedy? It was like, to me, that was an impressive fight because I was, I, I was not as sold on Luke Rockhold and that fight really cemented for me, like, this guy's very special. Absolutely. And like guys, even guys like middling pack guys like Tim Boach, who are known for their strength, it's just like ragdolls these guys and submits them with a Kimura. Like it's absolutely nothing, like a breeze in the park. So, so his wrestling checks out, his striking checks out. How's his grappling? You remember what he did to Chris Weidman? This guy can grapple with the greatest grapplers. He's got everything. Cardio. Jeez, he can go for 25 minutes and doesn't even break a sweat. He's got it all. But he can't take a punch. And in a game of punchy-kicky, which is what MMA is, that's like the most crucial thing is you have to have that ability to take a punch. He should not have lost to Michael Bisping. That last fight against Yul Romero, he's backed as a nearly 2-1 to one favorite. He's beating Yul Romero, but then he gets exploded on. And that's the problem he's going to run into. I mean, even Dave Branch almost had him wobbled in that first round. So moving up two weight classes, and I say two weight classes because even though it's just 185 to, to 205, it's 20 pounds. That's the difference of 35 to 55. That's the difference between 25 and 45. Every other weight class in the UFC is 10-pound jumps, and you're making the 20-pound jump. You were known as a long-rangey 85-er, but now you've lost some of that long-ranginess, body type. Jeez, guys are taller than you now. You thought they hit hard at 85? They hit even harder at 205. But speed should kill. This is a really slow division. Luke Rockhold's a really fast guy. So because Jan Blockowitz is not known for his aggression and his one-punch power, he's got a nasty hook, and he's coming into his own right. But because he doesn't fit the mold of guys that Luke Rockhold's really going to struggle against, I see him getting this win. And if they want to give him the title fight, I'd love it. Because I think he matches up good against Jones. Other than the fact that if Jones steams him on in the face, he's going to crumple over. Um, but if he's forced to fight a guy like Johnny Walker, or if he's fight, forced to fight a guy like an unknown guy who's just got a lot of, like a Tiago Santos even, should he beat those guys? <laughs> yeah, he's better than them everywhere, by a large margin. I'm not even But he's going to get hit at some point. It's the same thing with last week in Nganu JDS. I'm looking at him like, JDS has got a lot of paths to victory, but he'll get hit. At least a few times in this fight, he gets hit a few times in every fight. And that's not a luxury he can afford against Nganu. And as soon as he gets touched the first time, it's going to be over. And unfortunately that for him, that, that's how it plays out. You just can't take it. I don't think Rockhold's at that point. If he fights a murderous power puncher, that is what's going to happen. Against Blockwitz, I think he's okay. Can so you- I'm excited to see him because I'm a Luke Rockhold. Even though people say he's a dick, people hate him. I, I love watching Luke Rockhold fight. I really do. He's and a phenomenal fighter. If he gets blasted here, this could be the end of him. I mean, he's taking a chance jumping up to 205. I, I, I think that there's a very high possibility. Like, if he were to lose this fight, I mean, I, I don't know if he continues at that point. But with the win here, can you imagine the story that Rockhold – 
being with DC in his corner in the whole lead up to a fight with John Jones. I mean, that to me, Jones, let's say he defends the title against Rockhold and then he gets on the mic and he just looks at the corner and says, DC, I'm getting hungry and I'm coming up. (laughs) Boom. You know what? That's what you want to do. You want to sell stuff. That is absolutely the story to do. That's Rockhold going to beat the guy that is his longtime friend and training partner could not and win or lose. I think there's a great story coming out of it. And that could really just set the flame for a John Jones heavyweight jump to face Daniel Cormier, which whether he retires or not, I say Cormier would take that fight at heavyweight. Listen, the exact same storyline got used in the most popular of all Rocky movies. You got Apollo Creed coming over and taking on the big bad rush. In this case, the villainous John Jones. Hopefully the Rockhold doesn't get killed. But then you got Rocky. Daniel Cormier needs to avenge his friend. Bust his ass. Look, He'll have to bust his ass. He's looking terrible. Look at some of the biggest guy. fights in the last uh, 10 to 15 years of guys that have, whether it was Nick Diaz avenging Caesar Gracie's loss to Frank Shamrock, or it was Tito Ortiz running through all the Lions, Lions Den Den. members before you got to Ken. I mean, to me, it's just, it's such an easy story to do. And it, John Jones versus AKA, I think that that's a really intriguing one for people. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah. When it was Tito Ortiz versus uh, Jerry Bolander, it's just like, oh, Tito got one over and he's wearing the shirts and he's calling them out. It's like, well, how's he going to do against Guy Mesker? Rematch. Uh, beats him in the rematch. No, it's like, I want you, Ken. It's like, you build it up almost like a video game, but, um, that builds suspense. It builds storyline. It builds interest. And that's what the UFC is not doing. I look very clearly at, why can't they do a tournament? I'm not talking one-night tournament. I'm not saying stretch these athletes beyond, beyond their means in a single night. I'm saying, why can't you just say, hey, this, we have this vacant title or we have our champions sitting on the sidelines. We're going to have a tournament. Hey, Henry Cejudo's out. We're going to have an eight-man flyweight tournament to see who's going to get the crack at Joseph Benavidez. You probably only got eight guys left. Put them in a tournament. At least that way, it's like you're watching matchups. PFL has a roster of generally guys that did not make the UFC or guys that got washed out of the UFC. But there's interest there, John, because you watch them on a week-to-week basis, or not week-to-week, but you watch them fight multiple times throughout the course of the three months that they do it. And now you say, oh, geez, he got some points. How's he going to do next week? Oh, how's my guy doing this week? There's something to follow. Whereas MMA now, you don't have fan favorites. You don't have guys where you watch... Kurt Pellegrino and you can't wait to see him again. You watch Joe Lozon, you watch Jens Pulver, you're interested in these guys, you're you're going on sure dog forums to see when they're fighting again. That doesn't exist anymore. There's so many guys fighting all the time. I talk to people all the time, like, oh, this is my favorite fighter, blah, blah. Oh, I loved his last fight, he knocked out so-and-so. And it's like, oh, geez, buddy got sparked since then. And this guy doesn't even know. And I don't even have the heart to tell him. But it's just like, it's such a quick revolving thing that these guys just come and go uh, very quickly. Uh just rounding out some other interesting fights that we have on the court. Of course, Ben Askren is having his second fight this time against Jorge Masvidal. Um, you know, if, if you look at that fight and what he withstood against Robbie Lawler, I, I think like this one could play out very similar in, in this one. I mean, Jorge Masvidal, we've seen his takedown defense when, you know, he was really pressured by, you know, guys like Damian Maya. Um, but, but what kind of fight do you, do you expect here from like Masvidal is a guy that, um, you know, you say you get burned on Amanda Nunez. I get burned on Jorge Masvidal because sometimes I expect one thing and get the other with him. But 
I don't know. I'm, I'm leaning towards Masvidal on this fight. Am I crazy? Yeah, well, I got to go with Askren. I got to go with Askren on the simple basis of I think we shall, we'll see a better version of him here. You got to look at Askren not only had nearly two years on the sideline, but he hadn't fought anybody credible in quite some time. Like the biggest wins of his career, Lima and Korshkov in Bellator a long time ago. He's far removed from that. So him taking on Robbie Lawler presents not only the toughest guy he's likely ever fought in his career, but a big talent jump from to make your UFC debut. And what a lot of people remember from that fight is the early stoppage on the Bulldog. But to me, it was that he was unable to get in on Robbie's hips or clinch up with Robbie, got pelted on his head, some nasty ground and pound. I wouldn't have stopped it as a referee, but I suppose there was a case for some people who are a little uh, finick that maybe they would have stopped it. He gets back up. He's lo- The guy can't strike. We all know that. But the second attempt leading to the bulldog choke, John, he finally gets through. And that's what makes him a special talent is that Ben Askren's a chain wrestler. He's a guy like a Khabib, like a Tatiana Suarez, like a Colby Covington, whereas if they just choose to cling onto your hips and chain wrestle you the whole time, maybe you'll stuff the first couple takedowns, but they'll get you down eventually. Masvidal needs space to operate. I mean, the guy's a slick operator. He's got nasty boxing skills. He's got good takedown defense, but not great takedown defense. And that's what's going to screw him. I know that there's talks of, well, he's working with Colby and he's working with Yul Romero and his takedown defense is going to be awesome. I just don't think it's going to matter. When he fought Damian Maya, he's got all the skills in the world to defeat Damian Maya. I need to stop the takedown, keep this fight standing, beat this guy up. I've seen guys like Ryan LaFleur struggle. Fifth round, LaFleur versus Maya. Uh, Matt Brown versus Damian Maya, round three. You can get this guy tired. You can take advantage of him. I need to do that. Damian Maya goes four for 12 on takedowns. And what that is, is that, yeah, Masvidal stuffs eight of them, but he chain wrestles them. He's able to just connect round. He's able to connect his takedowns. So when you watch that fight back, it's 1-1 going into the third round. I mean, this is Masvidal's fight. Not only is it 1-1, but third round Damian Maya is the worst Damian Maya. So this is really your chance, but he gives up the takedown. And he's unable to get back up. I think Aspen will do the same thing. Pressure him, pressure him, pressure him. Try to get the takedown, eventually get him to the ground, and just hold him there. So maybe it's a classic Aspen decision because we all know how tough George Masvidal is. But uh, as far as styles go, this is a style that wins fights. When you look at the best guys in the UFC and when you look at guys that win uh, for consistent amount of years, it's that ability to not take damage and chain wrestle guys and just not get tired. And that's what Askren does. This is a three-rounder, so even better. Is Diego Sanchez going to have his magic wand for a third straight fight? I picked against this guy in the last two. And no, you picked Craig White against him. I didn't. No, oh, okay. you're right. You're right. Yeah, I didn't pick right. against Craig White. You took Mickey Gall too. Eh? Oh, I, I, dude, I thought Mickey Gall was going to like <laughs> just, just murder Diego Sanchez. Fair. Absolutely fair, murder fair. him. Uh, and I'm fully picking Michael Chiesa in this one as well. So tell me why I'm wrong. If I was to tell you number of years ago that in 2019 Diego Sanchez would be a fight away from being like a top 15 relevant contender, wouldn't you think that's crazy? And then you look at his wins, Craig White and Mickey Gall, like guys that should not be in the UFC and maybe it's not nearly as impressive. I will play devil's advocate to the point of why Diego Sanchez has a has a chance anyways, but Michael Chiesa, again, a guy that's kind of known for his cardio issues, guys that pressure him and are able to take him down have success, and even fights that he's won, like the Jim Miller fight or the Benil Darius fight, they're able to grapple him in spots, but, you know, they break in the second round, they go away. Diego Sanchez never goes away. He always keeps coming, and there could be a problem for Michael Chiesa, is that Michael Chiesa, when you look at his record, the fights that he's lost... There's an argument that he was getting tired as it went. Now Chiesa, who's known to just be an absolutely monstrous 155 pounder, moves up to 170 pounds, beats Carlos Condit. I'm not going to give that a whole lot of credit just because Condit clearly did not have the grappling chops. But here's the problem with Chiesa, John. He's a fighter's fighter. He's a finisher. He goes for the finish. So is he going to submit Diego Sanchez? Well, that's a funny task because Diego Sanchez in his entire illustrious career has never been submitted. He has fought some of the best guys in the world and his grappling checks out. Are you going to take down Diego Sanchez and maul him on the ground? 
Kies is a strong guy. He's a he's a power guy. But if he tires himself out in that first round trying to finish Diego Sanchez and doesn't get the finish, then you're going to have a Diego in your face rounds two and three coming at you. That's what Gall's problem was. You look at the first round with Gall. He's big. He's way bigger than Diego, and he's playing the range, and he's hitting Diego with some shots. And then as soon as Diego gets his game going and just starts to break you and break you and break you. This past weekend, shout out to Vince Pichel, the same thing. He's not half as fast as Roosevelt Roberts, but he's grindy, and he breaks it. And break. And you just see the soul leave Roosevelt Roberts' body like, oh, my God, like this guy's not going anywhere. That's what Diego presents, so... The smart play would definitely be, P- be Chiesa. But when you look at this card, John, how many underdogs do you like at first glance? Not a whole lot. So which one of these favorites are going to be the ones to blow it? I'm putting Chiesa in the maybe category. Wow. He could potentially blow it. I don't expect John to blow it. I really don't expect Amanda Nunez to blow it. I, I, I could see this being one. This is Diego's 30th fight in the UFC. It's rather remarkable. And also, like... Uh, a strange story, but totally in line with a Diego Sanchez move, leaving his camp that he has had his ups and downs with throughout his career and is going to have, he said, one corner man with him for this fight. Yeah, yeah, very strange. So he'll either look like a genius or not on Sunday morning. We will see. But it's um, I, like, hey, Diego Sanchez, I think he is, you know, when this guy announced he was going down the featherweight and then fight Ricardo Lamas. Uh, and lasted three rounds with Ricardo Lamas. On one leg. Like he just, like this guy fighting at 145 pounds. Just think about that. It's, it was absolutely insane to see. And I mean, doubting Diego Sanchez, it's just like he is able to pull out some of these performances. I just don't know if Michael Chiesa is kind of a step too far in terms of his ambition, but we'll, we'll find out. It could be. I think it's just the, the problematic style clash of with, if Chiesa does happen to get tired, then Diego could pose a problem. But yeah, no, I, you don't know what you're going to get at Diego. The last time he left Jackson's Winkle John, you know, on a serious note, and went and was training with Eric Del Fierro and Solo Ribeiro, yep. he had good performances, right? But ultimately, he came back home. The weird part is, is that you see all these guys leaving Jackson Winkle John, and the first guy to be like, y'all are rats, blah, 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 is Diego Sanchez. He's like defending them to the death. And now he's like, man, screw those guys. <laughs> it's like, I, he wasn't I, feeling the love. Yeah, yeah. Good little segue that you had with the 145-pound Diego Sanchez. Like, what are you thinking? I've noticed that guys from that era have this assumption that, geez, you know what? I'm not as competitive as I used to be. A weight class drop would do some good. We saw Jim Miller try it to, to no avail. We saw Great Maynard try it. So it's like, what are you even doing here? We saw Diego Sanchez try it. It made no sense. And the one, Gilbert Melendez. Gilbert Melendez is a world champion at 155 pounds. The best fight of his career has been at 155 pounds. He he could have been the first strike force champion to also win a UFC title when he fought Benson Henderson. In and many people thought he won that fight. In a very close fight. And then you see him drop down to 145 and like he looked awful against Jeremy Stevens. Now he sits on the sidelines for two years. Now he's coming back against Arnold Allen. The the casual fight fan will have no idea who Arnold Allen is. And he's a nearly three and a half to one favorite over Gilbert Melendez. The, the name opponent. All this and that. But the 145 it scares me. I think you, you get into your mid-30s, you're not as competitive, you realize, geez, these guys are all a lot bigger than they used to be, and the natural assumption is I'll go down to 145. But when you drop the weight class, as you as you get older, naturally, you do slow down. Yeah, and when you drop the weight division. class, they're just way too fast for these old dogs. When you look at that track record of the guys I mentioned, guys that are like, I'm going to drop down to 45, even an Anthony Pettis, he's not, he's not quite as old as some of those guys. 
But that that idea of I'm just going to drop down to 145, it's not the answer. And that's why I, I feel for Gil. But my little theory on that is Coker wants Gil back. I mean, he wanted him for a long time. He was his former Strikeforce champion. Remember, they tried to originally sign uh, Gilbert Melendez to leave the UFC, come over. UFC had to match a ridiculous contract. And in fact, put uh, he, got, he got on Ultimate Fighter and a title fight as a result of that. Because the contract said you had to match and Spike was going to give him TV time through Bellator. So it, they gave him a crazy contract. Now he's on a four-fight losing streak. He's been sitting on the sidelines for two years. But Coker still talks about him. And his wife, well, she's got a contract with Bellator as well. I'm at that point in my career where I can't be fighting the young Arnold Allens of the world that I've never even heard of, but could actually give me a hell of a run if not beat me. In fact, he's being heavily picked to beat him. I should be fighting a Bellator where I can headline cards for them, fighting guys that are my age, uh, guys with a name. You know, maybe, hey, Josh Thompson, he's got a he's got a commentating gig with Bellator. Why not run that one back? Stuff like that fits Gilbert Melendez more at this point in his life. So I don't doubt that he's taking this fight to, he, there's not much left on his contract, is either get this one out and leave, or get one or two, I think it's two fights maybe, and then get out of here. Otherwise, I don't see him being competitive at this point in his life, especially at 45. Yeah, I, I think that this fight, I mean, you look at it, it's it, since the Benson-Henderson fight, like he's gone one and five if you include that Benson fight. But when you look at who he's fought, Jeremy oh, yeah. Stevens, Edson Barbosa, Eddie Alvarez, Anthony Pettis. The lone victory in there was that that war with Diego Sanchez in 2013. Fight of the year, man. And then you had the, yeah, and then you had the Benson Henderson fight. That I scored that fight for Henderson. I, swear, I thought Gil won, but I'd have but to it's, rewatch it's it. Nar- I've rewatched close, that fight. It's it's incredibly close. You can go three two. I think either way. Um, but nonetheless, like he's fought very tough guys. But the performance against Stevens was, you know, the, it was not a weight cut that seemed to. Really agree with him. He also said in the lead up to that, like, he wasn't working with a nutritionist. He was like, you know, I, I know what weight cutting is. I can figure this Those stuff out. Those old school guys have that, that mentality. That's the mentality that's they the have. passes you by. You have to roll with the times. And it's like you have this two year layoff part of that. He had that, that time out when he had the, uh, the drug suspension as well. So it's like, this guy's missed a lot of time. And sometimes that can be good. Sometimes that can be bad. It's, but at this stage, I, I think that this performance against Arnold Allen, I, I'm not expecting Gilbert Melendez to turn the clock back in this fight. But I hope that it's a competitive fight. And if it's not, then I really wonder what is left for Gilbert Melendez. I couldn't agree more. The, the only other option, what's left for him, is that maybe Bellator could revive his career for a, a short time until eventually he runs into somebody. But that just seems to be the, the, the issue with some of these older guys is you can't get out of your contract. Fabrice Overdue, for example, he'll have to come back and fight out the remaining fights on his UFC deal. Well, what'll be left of Fabrizio Verdum when he, when he leaves? Is the UFC going to come back and give him a two-to opponent? No. They liked Cain Velasquez. He's a former champion. He's super marketable. He took two years off. Who'd they give him when he came back? Francis Ngannou. There's no, there's no gimmies. There's no layups. Bellator will give you that. They'll give you a quote-unquote gimme. Unfortunately, guys like Josh Koscheck still couldn't even beat that quote-unquote gimme. So it's fighting. It's never a sure thing. But they don't mind taking a chance on those guys that got a bit of a name. And the whole goal, to me, of fighting is, you know, doing enough to be able to springboard to the next phase of your your life. And for Gil, he's got ESPN. He's got his own gym. Is he still doing the ESPN stuff? I was talking with somebody. I haven't seen him in a while. I know he was doing it, but for whatever reason, I just... I'm I mean, he just filled him. in for, for uh, Chael on his show with with uh, Ara Hawani last okay, week. So, so I assume yeah, like he's well, in... For those listening to us, like, we're in Canada where we don't really get ESPN. So yeah, that not, is true. it's not really necessarily on our radar what their programming is. But... Um, 
Also, this weekend, we mentioned off the top, they have the annual Hall of Fame. How much do you get into the Hall of Fame ceremony? Is it something you watch? And kind of what what kind of weight do you put on the Hall of Fame ceremony? Yeah, nothing at all. Just because, like, the Hall of Fame, as far as I'm concerned, there's so many guys that I believe to be should be in it. And there's a few guys I don't even understand why they're in it. But all the same, the UFC just decides who they're going to throw in. It's kind of ridiculous. It was almost like the MMA Awards. There was a time where I was interested. And there was a time that I was like, this is something I'm going to watch and pay attention to. But... As the years go by, it's just one of those things that loses its luster. Like, what am I gaining out of watching this ceremony? Um, I thought I, last year's was actually really well done, especially, like, the video they did for uh, Bruce Connell, uh, who had just passed away. Absolutely, Like, yeah. they did some phenomenal stuff uh, last year's, which is kind of what – I mean, the Hall of Fame, when it was starting, I mean, we'd have either the in-octagon ceremony, and then we'd have ones at, like, the, the fan expo, where it's like – the guy would just come in, take the award in front of some fans, and it was like, Dance man, hovering, yeah, man yeah. this could be a much bigger event. So I like the fact they've put it into an arena setting, and it, it's kind of given a more kind of formal look at it. I mean, this year we've got uh, Michael Bisping, Rich Franklin, Rashad Evans, and the fight between Diego Sanchez and Clay Guida from 2009. No one going in as a contributor. I guess the fact they have two in the modern era. Yeah. I guess with Bisping and Evans, that would be my right. assumption. But anyway, those are our inductees this year. Yeah, and I, I, I got a lot of, uh, I got a lot of respect for Bisbee and everything he's able to accomplish getting the world title. It kind of caps off that. If this is a legit Hall of Fame and you're asked as a, as a media member, uh, to vote, are you, forget the fight, but the, uh, Evans, Franklin, and Bisping, are you voting for any, all, or some of them? Yeah, I'm not putting Evans in. I don't understand that one. I, I feel like that one's a pat on the back. Hey, sorry how things ended up. And the commentating gig, I don't know if he's going to be doing it. I just personally don't think he's very good at it. Um, See, I like a Hall of Fame where it's a high threshold to get in. And just being good. I completely agree, John. I completely agree. There's not just, you can't just be, oh, a former world champion who, how did he do when he tried to defend said title? And then how did he do in the years after that? Like, how did his career progress? Oh, well, he won that title that one time. Rich Franklin defended the title. Rich Franklin was viewed as the greatest 185 pounder in the world at that time. To me, winning a title is not, you, you get, your ticket punched. I, I I agree. I agree. And and there's you got to wonder if Evan Tanner doesn't pass away, is he in the Hall of Fame? Like there's certain ones like that. I don't know. Charles Mask Lewis is. God knows what that guy did for the sport. He's 100 percent in whether he passes away or not. He's a contributor. But there's other people who are like I just don't know what the criteria is, so to speak. So with Bisbig, European talent was huge for that market. Won the Ultimate Fighter. Won a world title. Um, Bisping, I put in. Bisping, I put in. And now he's a great commentator. But without the title win over Luke Rockhold? I don't put him in without the title win. Yeah, I, don't I think that's very big. It's huge. Because it, there was a point where, I mean, we really thought after the Luke, the first Luke Rockhold fight where he lost, that it looked like, okay, this guy is going to be, you know, higher level journeyman the rest of his career. You can headline fight nights with him. You can do enough with Bisping. And it was those last few years that to me really cemented his legacy um, with the Rockhold win. And, you know, whether you believe Dan Henderson deserved the fight or not, avenge that loss. And then when So that one's key to me, though, because he defended his belt, right? Whether yeah. you agree that that Dan Henderson Which should have had the not. fight. No, no, he never defended the title. So, me, I don't want to call him like a paper champion, but everybody in the Hall of Fame, at least on the fighter side of it, should have at least some point held a world title. To me, his legacy is more so um, what they drew him and Quinton Jackson. They did that... that mi- close to million by fight together, no title involved. Uh, to me, that's a more significant achievement in, in my kind of um, assessment of it than even winning the title from Forrest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I put 
if I was to put uh, Rashad Evans in, then I have an argument for why guys like Jens Pulver should be in or for why a guy like Dave Manet to a lesser extent. But they won world titles. Why should they not get in? But it's like you, you it's what you do with the world title. It's you setting your legacy. Everybody in the Hall of Fame should be a household name. And even though Rashad was a big fan favorite and he did a lot of great things, I don't know. I've got more of an inch for Quentin Rampage Jackson getting in because of everything he did in Japan and winning the UFC title over Stunner, over Chuck Liddell in the fashion that he did, having some big fights. Uh, I, I'm more inclined to put to put Rampage in. So when you look at Rashad, well, he beat Rampage and he had the fight with John Jones and he had some big memorable moments. He's not good over Chuck Liddell. I mean, Does drawing power in work into your equation reel. or is it simply what you do uh, with your fights? Yeah, it's what you do because Demetrius Johnson can't sell, but he's a Hall of Famer. Whereas mm-hmm. Conor McGregor, Conor McGregor's a Hall of Famer due to the fact that, I mean, he's one, he's certainly one of the greatest featherweight champions of all time. You can't deny that. And he's a champ champ. He should be in there. But if Conor McGregor never won a world title and was just this guy that talked a great game and fought guys like Nate Diaz and fought guys that were interesting fights but never won those world titles, he was a fan favorite. You know, he, he should get in or he shouldn't get in. Ronda Rousey, well, she has the long, the, the, the long title reign. So should she be in? Absolutely. Whether you think she got exposed or not, she should be in. Misha Tate. I think Misha Tate is one of the fan best competitors that's ever done it in that division. I think Misha, she won a world championship uh, in Strike Force. She won one in the UFC. Um, I don't consider her Hall of Famer. I, I think that the first fight. I think there's is, an argument there. The first fight between Ronda Rousey and Misha Tate in Strike Force. Everything. She's if a that fight doesn't happen, which is a fight that Dana White sees yeah, and fair. is the first kind of eye opener to what women's fights can do in a main event setting. I think that's one of the most important fights of the last decade. I, I honestly, I could not agree more. I can make a lot more. Um, and then they did huge arguments. business in the UFC together. I can make a lot more arguments for why Misha Tate should be in the Hall of Fame over Rashad Evans and um, not so much Rich Feinkam. But uh, again, there's there's arguments there. So, where's the here's the other problem? When you put three people in a year, eventually it's just going to get diluted because you'll eventually just run out of people. If you don't want to put Frank Shamrock in the UFC, what I don't understand. Eventually, you're putting people that have no business being there over him, and that's a problem with say like the boxing hall of fame the boxing hall of fame i got the uh, privilege of attending it a few times it's a good little ceremony and the guys come out and it, it's a fun time and it's an honor but when you put five guys in a year over the course of a hundred years eventually it's like oh here was some small guy from uruguay that won a world championship in 1926 and we just put him in on the pioneer side because like it just it makes no sense so i'd like to see the ufc go to something where it's like we're gonna put in one contributor no you can't put a contributor every year you're going to put either two fighters or one contributor in one fight i don't mind the 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 fights themselves being in the hall of fame like trig versus hughes and in this case uh clay guida versus diego sanchez like they are legendary fights no doubt but are you going to put one fight in a year and how do you determine what are the greatest fights of all time like are those the two best fights of all time no they're top 15 fights of all time right so it's very subjective, and I don't know. It, it, do they do it like a writers' association, like baseball, or who's picking this stuff? Just the UFC. no. It's just it's right, it's right. an internal decision process, and it's not very transparent either. In it's terms it's of- not transparent at all. So like, I don't understand the process, and I feel like all that leads to me just not being super excited. I think one thing that like um the you can make a do. great um series on Fight Pass, or at least a special where it's like a boardroom setting with whoever the decision makers are, yeah. and there's a vote at the end of it, and everyone's arguing for and against different. Like at least do something. You know what I mean? I mean, if you're if you're the UFC, and you, you know what you do, you know what you do is that you bring in your editor, you bring in your writer, you do all that, and you say, okay, these are the three guys that we got up. We're gonna put up, uh, I don't know, we're gonna put up three guys that are up for for nomination, and we're gonna do a video pack on them. Like these were their fights in the UFC. Like this is what these guys did in the UFC. This was their run. These were their like highlight moments. You have the stuff where you have Aaron Bronstetter coming in and giving his opinion. You bring.
bring in these writers. You, you do all that stuff. You fancy it up as like a little package piece, 10 minutes. And the 10, 10 minutes is on Frank Shamrock. And the next one's the 10 minutes is on, uh, Evan Tanner. The next one's the 10 minutes on, uh, somebody else. You, you got one on, I don't know, uh, again, Jens Pulver, let's say for example, or Jeremy Horner, whatever. And then after that, it's just like the fans, they see that stuff, they consume it, they get a better idea who the person is. You have writers give, go in and vote, and then you do it like the Oscars. You do it like any other award ceremony where it's like, and the winner is, and the person comes out. Listen, my dad got to the Sudbury Sports Hall of Fame, right? And it was like he fucking did not get in. Sorry, I swear there. Did not get in the first time, right? It's like he lost to some Mike Felingo who was a, an assistant coach for the Colorado Avalanche. And it was like devastating. And you sat there and you this took Ma- it. Mike Felino with the, the Jofa helmet? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Mike yeah. Felino, Both of his kids play in the NHL. Former, Marcus Sidney. Florida Panther, I believe. Yeah. Well, he was a former Sudbury Wolf too, John. There you go. Wow. And uh, Sudbury Boy, yeah. So, um, so he gets in the first time. But it's like it's devastating to sit there and be like, oh, no, I didn't get in. But then the next year you go back up. Like, it is, it is what you do. This is the same thing. They build some anticipation. When they just say these are the winners and watch on this night, I know who the winners are. So why am I going to watch? I'll just watch the write-up. You know, the hardest thing is, Cody, though, it's the like fact. there's there's so few that are want to ever argue against. And that's why it, it almost just becomes like if you reach a certain level, Hall of Famer, Hall of Famer. Everyone checks the box. No one wants to, like, argue legitimately the merits of someone. And that's what it, sports is, is like, yes, there's a level of greatness involved that you're in this discussion. But then we have to assess greatness and what necessarily qualifies if you're looking for a legitimate sports Hall of Fame. If you're just looking for a, a, a convention that's going to sell tickets and you can throw up on Fight Pass, it's like, okay, sure, the more the merrier, put them in. But uh, I think that if you you come from but looking at it like this is a legitimate uh, credit to your career that you're being acknowledged for, then you have to argue the strengths and weaknesses of each candidate. And there are weaknesses. And I think sometimes those just get kind of uh, whitewashed away. Yeah, I, I truthfully believe that there should be a UFC Hall of Fame and there should be a Mixed Martial Arts Hall of Fame because not, not all of these guys are going to fight in the UFC. And the Mixed Martial Arts Hall of Fame would be more like way more lackadaisical. You could put a guy like Travis Fulton into that Hall of Fame. You could put a guy like Joe Riggs into the Hall of Fame. But those guys can't be in the UFC Hall of Fame. Alexander Gustafson is a fantastic martial artist. He never won the world title. He came close twice. He has a, a legendary fight against John Jones. He needs got a damn fine fight against Daniel Cormier. He's got a great legacy. He is not a Hall of Famer. Those are the guys that are going to end up in the Hall of Fame eventually, and I disagree with it. I think guys like Alexander Gustafson could be in a mixed martial arts Hall of Fame. He could be in the Swedish mixed martial arts Hall of Fame. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer there. But as far as the UFC Hall of Fame goes, it's got to be more prestigious or else it becomes a joke. And when, when it becomes a joke, if I don't have any interest now, is anybody ha- going to have any interest in 10, 15 years down the road? Probably not. Last topic here. I want to talk about kind of uh, all the moves that have occurred in the MMA media landscape over the last little while. We've seen the launch of The Athletic. We've seen uh, many names that have gone over to ESPN. And I just kind of want to get some of your thoughts on just what the – the landscape is right now of MMA media, uh, jobs that are being created, jobs that you see disappearing, and just the overall health of it. Yeah, so I don't think the health's been good for the last number of years. I think when the UFC was at its height, uh, MMA media was at its height. And it's like anything, when they come down, we're going to come down as well. You've got a lot of sites, you've got a lot of writers, you've got a lot of talented people. And there's where you overcrowd the market, right? If I can go read 
10 good articles from guys that are interning or guys that are in college or kids that are just writing for on a freelance basis for these websites and they're writing good work, then it makes it harder for me to go to the athletic and pay the money and read Sean Alashanti. So, and I want to want, I want to mm-hmm. read, I really do. But there's where I get this like inner dilemma. I want to support my fellow colleagues. I want to support the work. I want to pay for it, but I can't pay for it because forever it's just been content, 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 content. And you and I used to work together at the fight network and it's the whole basis of it is just put this content out. We're doing news. We're doing interviews we got to get we got to get up to date on this stuff and then ultimately when you look at the numbers you spend a lot of resources in order to gather that stuff i, I look at all these major websites as the exact same way now mma junkies realizing we don't have the budget to send these guys to brazil to gather these clips when we come back and, and the return on it's just not there so they're releasing people and it's not just the mma landscape i just think it's the media landscape in general bob mccown i mean the guy's a toronto legend he himself just got released based on we can't be paying these big contracts anymore. We just don't want to do it. You're noticing the shift between TSN and Sportsnet and all these different things. It's just like there's a transition in the landscape as we switch to a more digital platform. The Athletics got the right idea. Let's you, you put do great have to, content yeah. online, but we got to make money for that great content. Of course. Banner ads yeah. is not paying it. I need to make money on the content. I'll charge. The problem is that all the websites would have to charge as well, and then we could determine I like the Athletic the most. I'll do that. When I get up in the morning – I check out Junkie, I check out MMA Fighting, I check out MMA Mania, I check out Bloody Elbow, then I check out Bad Left Hook, gotta get my boxing news as well. But you just go through the rigors. Middle Easy used to be my go-to, but, you know, transitions there as well. And run Caleb Run, but they shut down. So to Cage Potato. But as what I'm getting at is just there's so many websites where you can go and consume this information that if one of them decides you got to pay to come here, I'm just going to go read from the other six. And what I see a lot of times is just it's rewriting press releases. So the UFC or an agent or somebody's just going to send out a press release. Somebody's going to take it. They're going to rewrite it. And they're going to put out a quote. Colby Covington could give a two-minute interview, a three-minute interview. You're going to get four different articles based on that two-minute interview because one was this little quote he said, and I'm going to write something about that and one was this little quote he said so it's just always the same thing and and the toughest part is if you're an actual media writer you want to write about the stuff that interests you you want to write about the little guy that jason thacker interview um from chuck mindenhall did it it, one of the most fantastic pieces i've read that i wish i could read something like that i would pay for that i want to read about pete spratt i want to read about jeremy horn i want to write read about those guys but nobody else does they want to read about conor mcgregor they want to read about the Artem Lobov and Polly Malinaji stuff. They want to read about the guy who got spit in his face. That's the stuff that is generating the views and the clicks. So your boss tells you, you do some fantastic work, but I need you to write about this. You're not writing about what you want to write about. You're writing about something so that it can get additional clicks. And, and, and there's where you start to kill your passion. And you're seeing a lot of these guys are getting laid off, but a lot of these guys are just realizing, I'm not having as much fun with this as I used to. And that's the big burnout feel that I get from a lot of the, the original fans, from a lot of the original people that followed the sport is so much is happening that now i'm getting older now i you know you're in the same boat you start consuming mma and it's like you're a young man and like what else do you have you know mma and wrestling and this is life but but now you're married and now you have a kid and now you have a house and like now it becomes i'm gonna reserve myself and watch the fights that are meaningful not you in general i'm just saying the average person yeah, yeah. your life goes on and you have to grow with it and now you have less time so you have to prioritize that time but the ufc is just it's it's all over the place. Like, how can you follow your favorite fighter? It's more of a hey, me and the guys are going to get together at the bar this weekend for a couple beers because I haven't seen them in a month, and a UFC happens to be on the TV, so we'll watch a couple fights and shoot the shit, and then go home. Like, that's 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 where it goes. Now the younger fans, they're taking over. They're loving this stuff. They're fans that got into this game 
because of Nate Diaz and Conor McGregor. So they don't got a real idea of the roots of the game or the history of the game or where the game came from. It's just, we want to see this disrespect and we want to see money fights and we want to see champ champ fights, but that's not a sustainable business model. And I feel like that's where the UFC oversaturated it. The same thing happened on Happy Days when Fonzie decided to jump a shark on a pair of skis, John. Ain't no coming back from that. Which is the origin of the term. Yes, of course. Uh, we, a lot we of got don't know. <laughs> but I, I think to, to, to that point, what I'm most curious to see in all of this is what is going to be the function of, you know, kind of your big news site, like an MMA fighting uh, versus a lot of fans, readers, viewers attaching themselves to those specific reporters. Like I, I truly believe if Luke Thomas wanted to take his work and put up himself, I think that there would be much more of that attachment one-on-one that I am willing to spend, throw out $5 a month not because I'm doing an inventory of all the videos I'm going to get from Luke Thomas, all the shows he's going to put out, but I want that voice to be out there. I want to support that specific person. And I think that becomes difficult when you're an entity and asking people for money that it's just viewed as this big machine that you're not necessarily having that one-on-one support. And I felt that directly. Like I feel that, that me and Way, the reason we have gotten the support is the fact it is the two of us. And if we were with a, a big company trying to, you know, ask people to spend money each month, I think that'd be a much harder sell. People know it is supporting us. And I think that that's where you get the incentive from people. The question is, you know, how many of those people are out there? But to me, if you want to be able to ask people for money, it's got to be you're supporting the person much more than just the uh, looking at it like a subscription, like a subscription magazine or something like that yeah i couldn't agree more i mean you got to invest in yourself ultimately that's a big lesson i've learned over the last couple years is that people that go out on their own if you have that fan base and you do good work and you are committed and you do work hard people will support you people will follow you they don't want to see your work disappear they enjoy listening to it but robin black's a great example this is a guy that leaves fight network and it's like well where are his options well he'll sign somewhere else the best thing he did was not really sign anywhere else directly it's just do his own thing branch off and now he's able to do stuff for bkb in in england and he's able to do stuff for the design he just he's, he's doing stuff for yeah. Braves. Yeah, exactly. But you're now you're your own boss. You're working for yourself. Right. People like Robin's work. I mean, he's got a lot of haters, but you only have a lot of haters when you have a lot of fans as well. It's just part of the game, you know? And in Robin's case, he does good. And you and Way, I mean, you guys are an inspiration to a guy like me that, oh, geez, potentially someday if I've got enough fans, maybe people will want to spend five, six dollars to listen to what I have to say. But you got to be willing to put in the work and you got to be willing to build that brand. A guy like Luke Thomas, Luke Thomas gets given, you know, the most successful MMA show in the business from Ariel Hawani when he leaves, essentially. It's like, you got to keep this going. Well, those are big shoes to fill. You're never going to be able to fill it to the same level. So it gets some negativity. And I don't know if it's a contract issue or whatever the case, but now he leaves. If people are interested in hearing what he has to say he can still do the show he can continue to do the show and he continues to write and he can continue to do these other things and you know what? he's got a lot of other buddies here that are looking for some work as well why not band with these guys why not do something you know i've always felt like a guy like jordan breen supremely talented you know if, if Jordan Breen had a consistent platform where you could go and, and just listen to Breen stuff, I feel like it would do good. But I completely he ends up on this website and then he's over here for a little bit. And it's just it, it, it's it's hard to follow someone just like following a fighter. You're trying to follow your favorite writer. I used to like this guy, S.C. Mickelson. But in the large landscape of how things go, it just it just falls apart, so to speak. So, yeah, you got to just like being a fighter, you got to invest in your fans. But you also have to be able to say, I can go independent and and take some of these people with me. I don't know how Luke was doing that. Like he, he mentioned like it was the workload factor that he was doing, you know, three hours a day on radio. And then on those Mondays doing two hours of the MMA hour going off to do another three hours. Like 
and coming out from outside of New York as well. Like it just seemed to me to be a schedule that was impossible to keep up. But I think it's a very interesting time that if you're somebody in MMA media, it's always a volatile industry. Of course. Also one that um, I'm very curious to see what what this looks like a year, 18 months from now. Yeah, it could be. Like I said, I just, I feel like you're always getting people that are coming out of the woodwork that are, are talented writers. I mean, this is people's passion and people are, uh, there's just, it, there's so much talent out there that you have to really separate yourself and be special. And if you can separate yourself and be special, That's then the you got, you got to get paid for it. But who's willing to pay somebody for those kind of services? Just the money's not there. So you have more people going into other avenues. Well, geez, I'd rather write for some other sport where maybe I'm going to get a return here. But I got to say, it's just, I, I kind of feel it as media in general. It's people are oversaturated with the information that they're being given that you have to present something that really um that that really speaks to them that really can, can draw them in the economics stopped working like interest. that to me was the biggest issue was that okay it's like you're producing content but it's like when you're looking it's like how are we making this back and that was you know that's essentially been the story of media for the last really five plus years uh, Cody, it's always great to chat with you. What do you have going on in your world that you'd like to plug? Yeah, so uh, always keeping busy with the fights. As I mentioned, uh, numerous amounts of fights. You can always catch me on Twitter at CJ Safdie talking about literally anything that's on, whether it's Bellator, UFC, KSW, LFA. Uh, if there's something to be gained out of it, or if you are a fight fan, catch me there. And then on the side, John, got a couple racehorses. So I've been, uh, oh. yeah, yeah, it's, uh, standard bread, so not like thoroughbred. Um, I always thought to myself when I was growing up, I've got two realistic like career paths. I could either be a jockey or I could be a gigolo. But I'm too big to be a jockey and too small to be a gigolo. So I kind of fell into this like – That's got to go on the business card. <laughs> media personality kind of breaking down the fights. But yeah, that's a second passion of mine for sure. So uh, tonight we're uh, racing one at uh, Mohawk. So, wow. Yeah, yeah. Shadow of a doubt. Not spelt like you would assume it is, but all these names are used, man. You got to get creative. So wish me some luck there and just keeping life interesting, man. Summer in, in Canada. And if there's one thing about Canada is I think we have the greatest summers. We just also have another eight months. So enjoying it. Things have been good. Well, Cody, we'll have to do this again sometime soon. It's always great to catch up with you. Uh, UFC 239 is going down this weekend. We'll have coverage of that on the site. So you can always check out that postwrestling.com. Give the man a follow at CJ Safdick, and that's it. We're out.